today on the NFL Films Podcast. The And Then There Were Eight edition. It's Divisional Weekend, and we will break down the remaining teams, what's at stake, and what's going to happen. No messing around this week, Polly. We got Heroes of War blaring. We got Greg Cosell in the house right now. Let's do it. Welcome, gents. We are recording this podcast almost exactly in between Wildcard Weekend and Divisional Weekend. It'll come out. Actually, it'll come out right split right down the middle. And boy, we couldn't be more fired up. Well, I'm I'm trying to get fired up because I was just watching the Jaguars' offense. And and oh boy, I need to be fired up. You I need, need to, I need something. You look like you need some caffeine. <laughs> Perhaps it was just a, a great pitchers' duel, uh, Greg, and you're not giving it credit for the tension filled. One play can make a difference drama that it was. Any chance of that? Did you find that game tension-filled? Glass half full. Actually, it, I did. I did, you did. O- only in the sense, when one play can... Yeah, can, When it's, it's one score, yeah. and any Bills... You know, the Bills' offense was at best anemic, at worst inept. And yet, one long special teams play, one missed tackle, and like Joe Flacco throwing that bomb in Denver suddenly the Bills are moving on. So when you're within one score, I, I can... No, you're right. And the Bills right. and the Bills and Jag stories coming back into that game, there, there was enough at stake there that I could stay sort of very excited about it. But, I mean, you know, you, you saw it in a more... Um, I was thinking of it Clinical more, fashion. Yeah, tactically and clinically, yes. It's, it's a limited offense. That would be a good word to use. So shall we dive in right now? Well, we can go... Game st- well, uh, whatever case, game you want to go. You can start here's in... Here's where I would pick up on that. I think that game brought into stark relief the big picture story of that were that is going to play out in divisional weekend. That game we saw two teams with quarterbacks right. who were not at an elite level to right. to, to to be kind uh, certainly in that game, but but in their careers and conventional wisdom, anybody would say that the NFL is a quarterbacks league, right? Uh, quarterback, head coach, everything flows right. from there. And this week, that's going to be put to the test because in all four matches, ac- matchups across the board, we're looking at great future Hall of Fame quarterback, maybe Matt Ryan's on the fringe, but he right. was the MVP last year, sure. versus either not yet established, backup, or I don't know what this guy is yet. In Nick Foles, in Case Keenum, in Marcus Mariota, and Blake Bortles versus Breeze, Brady, Roethlisberger, Matt, Matt Ryan. Ryan. I don't know that we've ever seen it so starkly so stark, laid yeah. out for us that this is going to be it, and it's going to be all four, all four games. The same storyline is going to unfold. Which one of these quarterbacks is able to 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 win a game. Well, what's particularly interesting, too, is Marcus Mariota was a second pick in the draft, and Blake Bortles was a third pick in the draft. So, obviously, Keenum was a free agent who's banged around the league a little bit, but you're dealing with, you know, a quarterback in Mariota who was a consensus first or second pick in a draft. Bortles at three, I'm sure some saw him that way, but he was certainly a consensus first-round pick. Uh, and it also raises another question before we specifically get to the games is if you have a really 
solid football team like the Jaguars do, I mean, you could argue that their defense is top two or three in the league. It's really good at all three levels. They have a running back who's theoretically a foundation back. I don't think their O-line has played as consistently as some, but it's it's a quality O-line. What do you do as you go forward? Do you keep saying to yourself, because this is Bortles' fourth year, I believe, do you do you keep saying to yourself, well, he's going to get incrementally better? And this is a decision a lot of teams end up having to make one way or another. They picked up his fifth-year option, right? I th- Did I they? I think they did, yeah. A first-round okay. pick has that fifth-year right. option that a team has to pick up. Right. And I believe they picked up Bortles' option. So that means they're, that he's their quarterback next year. So it, it, you know, it raises an interesting question as to... What do you do when you have a quarterback maybe you're not comfortable with, but the team is is good enough to contend? And as you've pointed out on our show before, Greg, the Jaguars are only in year one under Coughlin, but they're 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 continuing this build, which is based on a philosophy evident by their drafting of Fournette, by the construction of that defense, which says maybe they are content to design a different role and well, expectation for their quarterback than they might otherwise if they hadn't been building those other pieces that way. I don't know if content's the right word. I think it's a it's a formula and a profile and an approach, but it, it is the NFL. And at some point, if you want to get to a Super Bowl, and Tom Coughlin is not there just to get to the wild card round and lose. He's been doing this for too long. At some point, your quarterback has to make throws. You can't hide your quarterback in the NFL playoffs. Would, now, now, just to finish, that doesn't mean he needs to drop back 45 times, but you can't hide him. There, are, He's going to need to make some throws in difficult situations when the defense has the tactical advantage. The way I like to say it is, at some point in January, your quarterback is going to have to bail you out of a, of a situation that you've gotten yourself into. At some right. point in the three or four games required to win the Super Bowl, these coaches and these defenses are too good. Right. They're going to put you in a difficult spot, and your quarterback is going to have to bail you out. I mean, well, no less than Belichick says it. Players win the games. I mean, did, did Mariota do that last week in yes. Kansas City? Yes. I would say that Mariota made the plays in that game that bailed out his team, and they were not conventional. They weren't, they weren't slicing and dicing a defense. He made... He made – there was a great scramble. There was the obvious, instantly iconic touchdown right, that's, pass to that's himself. Fluky, but what I would say is this. I, I've watched the Titans every game since Mariota's been there. This year was probably his worst season of his three uh, for any number of reasons. But in that game, and this plays to your point, Kaz, he made more second reaction improvisational plays right. than he has that I can recall in any game this year, and sometimes that's part of it. You can't necessarily live on those or count on those, but as you said, a given game will require certain things to happen that maybe another game won't. That game required it, and he was able to make those second reaction plays. We used to talk about when Peyton had his struggles in January that one question we used to ask around here was, is Peyton almost too robotic for January, yeah. for January? Because you are going to be facing those moments where everything breaks down and you have to improvise. You whether, mean, it's, you, or, whether it's or, Eli right. to Tyree on the helmet catch required Eli doing superhuman things just to get rid of the football. That Peyton, that was never Peyton's strength. There, there were games earlier in, in Ben Roethlisberger's career 
when he took the Steelers to Super Bowls, he was not yet a great quarterback. But what he was great at was third and eight, getting you nine yards somehow or other. Well, what you're basically saying, and I guess this is because I think about this more tactically, is your quarterback still has to be able to function when the defense tactically wins the down. Which Blake Bortles did a lot of against Buffalo with his feet. Right, right. And and but when all said and done, he scored ten points. Now oh, I'm, I'm not I'm not no. I'm not here to praise No, the no, but the point being that we can lead into that game beautifully right there and talk about the first time these two teams played week five, which was an odd game, as you well know, Cos being a Steelers fan. Bortles only threw for about 120 yards, and it was the five interceptions, obviously, that Ben threw, two returned for touchdowns that resulted in the Steelers losing 30-9. to Now, assuming all things being equal, that's not likely to happen again. So one would assume that Jacksonville will have to sustain offense at a much higher level in this game in order to compete. So what are we seeing Jacksonville do going back into Pittsburgh with that game on their resume this season? But it was in October— it was two different teams. As you said, that was just one afternoon. Sure. And we've seen the last few weeks up to and including this past weekend where the Jaguars' offense was not dynamic and Bortles was – the plays that he, were making, he was making were sort of outside of the design right. uh, of what they might Which have, he can do, by the way. Well, and he's also capable of running option, zone read, which he's done throughout this season. But it would seem to me and, – and it's always, I guess, a mistake to try to get into coaches and teams' heads – but it would seem to me the last thing that the Jaguars would want to have happen is to put the ball in Bortles' hands early in the game and run the risk of early turnovers. If they were to fall behind 13-17-0 in Pittsburgh, they're not going to win the game. So now you're getting into Leonard Fournette. And this is a run game that has been very up and down this year. It's a run game in which Fournette, 75% of his carries this year have come in some variation of base personnel, meaning there's not three wide receivers on the field. They either have a fullback on the field, they have two tight ends on the field, they have three tight ends on the field. It's some variation of base personnel. That's what their run game is. Now, they had some success with it against Pittsburgh. Uh, Obviously, his yardage was increased by the 90-yard touchdown late in the game, but he still gained over... He was still around 100 yards was without at, that. He, without So late in that game, he had a 90-yard touchdown late in the fourth right, quarter. Right. The Steelers' defense was worn out, sold out to stop the run. Right. Take that away. It was 27 carries for 91 yards, 3.3 yards per Which carry. Which is about what he's been this but, year for the most part. But if he gets 27 carries on Sunday, the Jaguars are going to be feeling very good. About it. What's the old adage? Well, well, a, question. a Parcells yeah. adage, it's not the yards per carry, it's the number of carries in a situation. Your point is like correct. If, they, if he gets 27 carries, it means it's a ball game late third quarter into the fourth quarter. No question. And that means it's anybody's game. But, uh, you know, this is that's the critical piece of their offense. They must be able to at least stay on schedule uh, and stay ahead of the sticks as people like to say, with their run game. Because I'd be very surprised if they put the ball in Blake Bortles' hands early in this game. What have you seen of Fournette as the year has gone on in this sense? He's still a rookie, and there's yeah. the, always the talk of, well, this, this season's a little bit longer than the season that he's had no to question. any other time in his life. And now he's playing even in another, he's into the second playoff week. Has Fournette diminished? Does it seem like a physical fatigue thing? Is he up to carrying the ball uh, as much as they need him to this week, based on what you've seen over the last half of the season? Well, my guess is mentally he is. I think he's slowed down a little bit. I think he's been a little hesitant at times. 
Um, I think earlier in the year he was hitting it up in there really hard. That's the kind of runner he is. He's your classic runner that it looks like he just gained three yards and you look up and it's second and three. That's the kind of runner he is. But now I think he's been a little hesitant. He hasn't been hitting it up quite as hard. I think that's what he needs to do. I think he stopped his feet at times. And when I say stop his feet, I don't mean he stops dead in his tracks, but he starts to pitter-patter a little bit. You know, who knows whether he's a little tired from a long season. He's had a lot of carries, I think, including the playoff game against Buffalo. I think he's up around 290 carries. That's a lot of carries. And he's a physical contact collision runner. He doesn't... And and that's a positive for his style and his size, but at the end of the day, he's getting hit a lot. So uh, I think there has been a little bit of a d- d- diminishing returns. Kaz, was it the Jag game that afterwards Ben gave that locker room interview where he— Maybe, maybe I don't have it anymore. Yeah. I mean, he was, <laughs> right, right. He was beaten down yeah. after that game. Oh, it was classic Ben, though. Yeah. I mean, you know, is he Ben Ben likes to create— um, narratives, I think, in, in when he speaks. Well, the other side of the ball is interesting, too, because I went back and looked at that Week 5 game, and the Jaguars played almost all what we call cover three. It's a zone concept. They did nothing special with Antonio Brown. They didn't travel anybody with him. They didn't match up. Um, the, times, the few times they played man-to-man coverage, uh, and Jalen Ramsey was lined up over Brown. He got in his face and was very, very physical with him. But they played predominant zone coverage and did not treat Brown as a special receiver in any way, shape, or form. And he was healthy then. Okay, if I might interject for a moment now, because I have something personal I need to... Because we have a Steelers fan who I think is... uh, I I wonder if it's going to be about you just saying that Antonio Brown is not a special kind of receiver. No, 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 no. This is my 21st season with NFL films in these 21 years, this is the first time I'm ever going to attempt to speak publicly and dispassionately about the Pittsburgh Steelers. They are, they are the reason I am in this business. If you, if you grow up in Western Pennsylvania, which I did, the Steelers enter your bloodstream at an early age and effect and, and actually become part of your identity in a way that only Certain small market teams and small markets and corners of America that are largely forgotten, some some of them past their prime, can impact a young person's life. My 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 earliest memories. This my, is really charming, Greg. Is, it is, isn't this it? Is, so so for me, so gentlemen, we're we're embarking on a journey together here over these next three four weeks, where you know if they if they win this week. Obviously, the stakes will be very high next week. If they lose, I'm going to be very difficult to talk to next week. And if they, if they slay the dragon in Foxborough, we're going to have a lot to talk about after that. <laughs> and if they don't slay the dragon in Foxborough, we're going to have a lot to so talk about. So in other about. words, he's, what he's telling us, Paul, is he's a front runner, basically. This so is, they, there, well, it, that is not the case. Keith's audio it, diary, yes, chapter yes. one. I, I, I say all that by way, by way of, of leading to, the, to, to this. I... In some ways, I feel like I've seen this movie before. I've seen it many times, where the Steelers are a heavy double-digit, right. near double-digit home favorite in a playoff game. Not many people see a scenario where they lose, but I can tell you the way you lose games like this, because I've seen it many yeah. times. It is a big special teams play, right? A freaky turnover, a couple interceptions. 
an 80-yard touchdown pass. You know, those kinds of you're dominating the game, you feel right. like, but you're up nine to three in the middle of the second quarter and then something weird happens. And all of a sudden, that road team gets a little bit of confidence well, that's, and a little bit of belief. And it's the Jaguars' defense that's the critical piece here as far right. as making it that kind of game. And, and I don't think the Steelers should come out here and try to blow out the Jaguars. I, I think that would be a fool's errand to some degree because that defense is the real deal. And if Ben comes out and tries to gunsling from the word go, I don't know if he'll have success. On the one hand, he's playing unbelievable football. He's ever since their bye week, he's been on fire. He's a different quarterback than he was in week five. When he no was doubt. all done. No doubt. Yeah. When he, <laughs> when, he, when he didn't have it anymore. Um, on another hand, three weeks without playing, Ben's yeah. never been great in that situation. He's not. That's a little bit of a long time. Also, he hasn't played with A.B. in five weeks in their favor. That offense has, is way, way, way further evolved than it was in week five when Le'Veon Bell was not himself yet, when Martavis Bryant was a, a bit of a mess, to be frank, and Juju Smith-Schuster was not yet the Juju who became a, 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 a phenomenon. A player I really a phenomenon. like. He's, a he's player terrific. I really like. It's, like. it's like in Heinz Ward's body, a more dynamic playmaker even than Heinz was. And they, they had not yet developed what Vance McDonald, the, the new tight end who's arrived, appears to be coming in that offense, which is another weapon. There's a, they've got a number of weapons now that I don't know any team in the league can match. Um, even a defense like the Jags. So you might say, come out and attack and, and just be that offense. But if you come out and attack and, and have a couple early turnovers and give Blake Bortles a short field, you could really be in trouble. I, I might say, let's put this one in Le'Veon's hands and grind it out. And well, it's an mistakes. interesting philosophical discussion, which happens all the time. Uh, the bigger the game, no matter how quality your quarterback is, and obviously Ben's going to be a Hall of Famer, is when you're playing a team that you feel is not likely to score a lot, is how do you, how do you approach it? Do you try to put them away early? Or, given the quality of that team's defense, do you do what you just suggested? It's, it's, that's a philosophical question that I think a team, as they game plan, has to has to think about, and I'm sure they do think about it, is just what you said. Do the Steelers come out with the attitude that if we get up 14 nothing, they're not scoring 14 points, we're done, this game's done. Or do what you said, just in a sense play it relatively close to the vest, running the risk, cause as you know, that all of a sudden now we're in the third quarter and it's 13-7, and that one special teams play that you're talking about, that one you know, long touchdown now becomes a factor that could change the course of the game. And you talk about the movie you've seen before. Let's talk about the Tom Coughlin filmography. Now, he's not <laughs> the head coach, but whether it was the Patriots in 46, the Patriots in 42, Boston College at Notre Dame in 93, whether it was RIT against Hobart, whenever <laughs> Coughlin's been associated with a team, the profile that they match is, we like to have the chip on our shoulder, we like to be told we can't win the game, and I'm sure they're loving being underdogs at Pittsburgh, despite the fact that they beat... He's telling everybody in that building, oh, well, you beat them 30-9 to nine and you're an underdog this week. Don't forget, no one thinks you're any good. You, you gave up three points last week to a playoff team, but they're not giving you a chance. It, it fits right in that wheelhouse of the, of the 
go ahead and overlook us, Tom Coughlin playbook that has led to multiple Super Bowl rings. So, yeah, watch out, Pittsburgh. Well, I, maybe I'm talking myself into into coming out and attacking. <laughs> maybe maybe that is the, because you know you know you think about like Marty Ball, the right. coaches who have traditionally right. struggled this time of year and not gotten over the hump. We usually look at them and say. You played what? What's the phrase? The cliche? You played not to lose. But on the other hand, you do have the back who I believe has more carries than any back in the league this year, and your offense very often this season ran through Le'Veon Bell. So it's 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 an interesting conceptual question as to how the Steelers decide to come out and play this week. Well, you could play like in a cautiously aggressive way by building a game plan around Le'Veon Bell because you can use him in the passing game no with question. safe passes and and in the running game. He's such a dynamic threat that that you can you can do safe things and still be dynamic. But see then the the issue it's not an issue, but then what teams do that try to take that approach is then they go for what we call shot plays on occasion. In other words, first down, normal down and distance situations where they line up with um run personnel, base personnel, and run formations and try to hit downfield throws. If you're going to do that, then you have to hit those. Because if you don't hit those, then you're to second and 10 or whatever it is, and then you're stuck behind the chain. So you have to hit those if you're going to take that approach. Does any team take more shot plays on third down than the Pittsburgh Steelers? Well, there's clearly a confidence with Ben and certainly Antonio Brown that if, if, if there's one-on-one coverage and it's down the field, he's going to throw him the ball and feel pretty good about it. Um, I can't answer that you know, specifically, but it's obviously a team that has no problem driving the ball down the field. Because you will see, you will see this at least once on Sunday, I guarantee it. Third and three, third and two, yeah. third and three, an obvious just get the first down situation. Ben loves to go deep in that spot. Well, because they get, because what they normally do is they'll uh, is they'll get one on one coverage on the outside. Right. So he's gonna he's gonna throw the ball, and they're pretty successful doing that. All right. This has been enough of Keith's therapy yeah. session here. Let's move on to the other side of the AFC bracket, <laughs> because it would seem to me. Wait, we're talking about the other games today. D- there is more than one game this weekend. This is not KDKA Pittsburgh. <laughs> this is the NFL call. Films podcast. We are covering all bases. <laughs> so let's talk about the Titans, though, because again, from from what I think I see, there might be some similarity to the discussion we just had. Do the some and, degree. And Greg talked about the malarkey plan last week. We line up, we run the ball, we have a profile of our approach. Is that what they are? Is that it what is they have what to they be are. again this week going into? Are the Patriots the best uh, offense in football, statistically? I believe. Yes, I think they're so, number one. So they're going to Gillette, a game, again, no one's going to give them a well, chance, the whole nine yards. Derrick Henry, Mike Malarkey, are the Titans having to follow that same game plan to have a chance this week in New England? I think the Patriots are number one in yardage. I think the Rams are number one in scoring. That's correct. Okay. Go up, sorry. No, Go no, ahead. that's correct, though. Um, again, they have a distinct profile. They'll play to that profile. I, the, the, the macro view of this game is they need to do two things. They need to be able to run the ball with some sustainability, and they need to get pressure on Tom Brady, who, by the way, has been pressured a lot more this year than in previous years. And Dick LeBeau, as we all know, is very good with his pressure concepts. 
I believe the Titans were the third or fourth uh, team in the league in terms of most sacks on defense. So they are very good at generating pressure. There are some distinct flaws in the O-line of the Patriots that can be attacked. So they need to get pressure on Tom Brady. Uh, and that that's if they can do, do those two things, then the game is at least competitive. Now, the, the thing we talked about earlier in, in the podcast, which we'll come back to now, is Marcus Mariota and his ability to make outside of structure plays, which could be critical. That's what was very important last week when they beat the Chiefs and came back from being down 21-3. Uh, they're they're more capable than Jacksonville of running a pass game within structure, so they do have that to some degree. The, I'm curious as to whether they'll spy Mariota. The Patriots have done that with mobile quarterbacks. They play against Tyrod Taylor twice a year. They spy him on occasion. I'm anxious to see if they do that because they're a predominant man-to-man based defense and they'll play man coverage. And to do that, I think they'll feel that they need someone in a position to react to Mariota. Otherwise, he can hurt them with their with his legs. So that Patriot philosophy we've heard about so often over the years, I guess really the Belichick philosophy going back to the Giants is, I'm going to take away your strength and make you beat me with your, right. your weaker uh, right. aspect of your game. So are, you, so are we? is it safe to say then... If you had to guess, what is it they're trying to take away? Mariota? Well, they'll try to take away Mariota in those, in passing situations, clearly, uh, because I don't think they want to get beat by him running the ball. There's nothing worse than when it's third and eight to have the quarterback run for 12 yards. And, and he did that a number of times last week against the Chiefs, and those were really important plays. But just backing it up a step, though, can the Titans' offense line up with Derrick Henry and just run it down the Patriots' throat? Well, that's a hard question to answer. Two weeks ago when they played Jacksonville, they couldn't run at all, and Henry looked very slow and plotting. Much Be- better defense. Jacksonville's got a great yeah. front and linebackers, as you pointed no out. No question. Much better defense than um, New England in terms of personnel. Right. Um, this week, this past week, the Titans O-line played arguably its best game of the season created a lot of space for Henry because Henry is a momentum runner. Henry is not a shifty runner. Henry needs his first three, four steps to the point of attack to be clean. He's not going to make penetrating defenders miss in the backfield. He's not a change of direction runner. He needs to be able to generate momentum. That's how he builds up some power. He's not naturally powerful in the sense that if he's in a confined space, he he knocks people around. He needs to build up that power. And then his size. And, and then his, his size comes into play. So their O-line did a phenomenal job against the Chiefs defense, quite honestly, that did not have a real good season. So you're asking me, can they do that against New England? You know, the thing about Belichick is they do give up yards on defense. They yes. always give up yards yeah. on defense. Yeah. They don't give up a lot of points, but right. they give up a lot of yards. So it could be a situation where Henry runs for 120 yards, and if if it plays out the way Belichick wants it to play out, they could have 13 points when the game's over. You said that Brady has been pressured more this year than in years past. Is that a function of something he's been doing differently or a reflection of their offensive line play? Nothing he's been doing. I think it's a function of scheme and O-line play. I think they've thrown the ball down the field more than we've seen them. Uh, consistently. Uh, So those downfield throws require two things, either deeper drops or him to stay in the pocket a little longer. And I think the O-line, some weaknesses have shown up. Their left guard, Joe Thune, has struggled in one-on-one pass protection. 
their right tackle position. It's now been Cameron Fleming due to injury, and that's been a little bit of a struggle at times. So they've struggled with some individual one-on-one pass protection, and Brady's been in the pocket a little longer. So uh, he's just, even when he's not sacked, he's been getting hit a little more. Do you view his play over the last four or five weeks as a drop-off or a product of something else because it's clearly fallen yeah, off a little bit. What, what have you seen on, on the tape? Well, his think? last game was not very good, and, and it was very surprising. It, he was... Against the Jets, right? Week 17? Yes, yes. And it was a division game. The Jets played to win. They obviously know him well and that offense, so you have to take that into account as well because division games are always a little different, as you guys know. But I thought that Brady was a little... He played a little fast. He wasn't quite as composed and he was nowhere near as accurate. I mean, he missed some routine throws with poor ball placement, which we are not used to seeing Tom Brady do. So I don't want to sit here and say his last four or five weeks have been awful, because they haven't. He still led the league in passing yards, and I think he led the league in yards per attempt, which is very much a function of what I said earlier, that they're trying to, that they've pushed the ball down the field a little more this year. Um, and everybody's going to say it's the playoffs now, it's Brady's time. I, I, don't, I never know how to answer that kind of question. He is 40 years old. Um, but no, he has not been as sharp over the last month or so as we normally expect Tom Brady to be. Well, Keith, we all know the Patriot whole franchise is about to just fall into the ocean. Yeah, it's disintegrating. They're going to sell it and yeah, move away to Neptune or something. So maybe this is the last time we even see the Patriots play at Gillette. Who knows? The, now, you guys thought we were getting away from the Steelers. I'd, I'd like to go back to this point. We can always edit this where, out later. Go ahead. Where, Did where, you know he's from Western Pennsylvania? By I hadn't way? heard. Yeah. Where Where was the so-called exotic smash mouth offense born, Mr. Cosell? I don't even know what that you means. You mean Mike Malarkey? The, the Mike Malarkey. That's just a name. I That's know. just a name. I said for the so-called. An, for an offense that stems from Mike's belief, which goes back to when he was in Atlanta as the offensive coordinator and they had Mike earlier. Mal- even earlier, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, right. 2001, Cordell right. Stewart and right. Bettis. He, right. he invented all kinds of ways for Cordell to convert first right. third downs in traditionally run-oriented schemes where he would use... It was with Cordell's brief revival right, right. in 2001. No question. Malarkey was the offensive right. coordinator when they lost at home in the championship game, the first of their trio of disastrous championship game defeats to New England. Their defensive coordinator, the Titans' defensive coordinator, is the legendary Dick Dick LeBeau, who has been owned by Tom Brady as much as any, not quite as much as Tomlin. Obviously, there's overlap, but Brady is 6-2 and against LeBeau and has dominated him over the years. Has LeBeau adjusted his defense and his scheme in ways that lend themselves to beating Brady in this situation? It's a great question because one thing that the Titans have really done, they started doing it last year. I actually talked with Dick LeBeau briefly about it at the Combine last year, and he continued it this year, is more man coverage because he wants to rush five, and he feels that if he rushes five that he wants to play more man. So this is a team that 
tends to rush from different looks, a lot of different looks. If you watch the Titans, you'll see Brian Arakpo standing in the middle of the defense, almost like a middle linebacker. You'll see Derek Morgan doing that at times. You'll even see Jarrell Casey at times. You'll see Casey line up as a wide nine defensive end. He moves people all around because what he tries to accomplish is to get one of his best pass rushers on a back. That's what he tries to do. And then he tries to get Arakpo on a back. He tries to get Morgan on a back. Now, if he, if someone happens to run free because the protection makes a mistake, that's great. But that's that's not the goal in the NFL. That's hard to do. Why has that worked so well against 99% of NFL quarterbacks and been totally futile against Tom Brady? Well, I don't know if he's done this specific thing against Brady because this has been something he's sort of evolved into in Tennessee. Okay. You know, when he was in Pittsburgh, he not that he didn't play any man, because in his later years in Pittsburgh, they made Ike Taylor much more of a man-to-man corner, right. as you know. Right. But I think this greater emphasis on five-man pressures out of sub-packages, five defensive backs, right. six defensive backs, with man-to-man coverage okay. has become a little more of a staple. Yes. I think that's the direction he's now moved, his adjustment to the NFL. So we'll see. This has been the approach. I. I don't believe he's going to rush three or four and play zone. That We know that that doesn't usually work against Tom Brady and the Patriots. Right. Well, we've seen that movie a lot yes. of times. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me, Keith, as, as we talk about these games, this really is sort of the Bill Parcells tribute weekend. And we have the, the Belichick Patriots Saturday. We talked about the Coughlin Marone Jaguars. And just kind of bouncing the other side, we have the Mike Zimmer, Sean Payton Vikings Saints game. See, you know what you're doing here. His fingerprints are all wow. over. You know what you're doing weekend. here, Paul. And Paul, who are you a fan of? Uh, I root for the New York Football Giants. Oh, shocking! Listen, I we can't have help now it. had dissertations on Coughlin deep into the IMDb of his filmography, going all the way back to 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 what RPI. The facts. Of we the now case have remain, this Keith. is a Bill Parcells tribute weekend when I just clearly laid out. That this is this weekend is really about the Steelers. Isn't Fine, go with your counter narrative, but let's let's everybody fake news recognize. Getting personal. Let's Paul. everybody recognize this is agenda driven podcasting. Big the big tune is fingerprints are all over not just this weekend but the modern game. We can do a whole pot on that later. He's taking it's very personal. It's business. That's what I you know. <laughs> that's what we were we were talking about before this started was was. Personal versus was actually not to go off on a tangent, but this connects to Parcells too. Yeah, so go ahead, Nick Saban in the championship game, having the whatever you want to call it to change his quarterback at halftime and go with a, a freshman. Not only is yeah, you got to have guts to put in a freshman quarterback in that situation, but there is some loyalty that most humans would have to this kid that has been your quarterback for two seasons right through one interception was 25 and two but we found out it was a phenomenal kid based on the interview right. he gave after the but, game but it tells you that in those moments you got to be dispassionate well that's There's why that word. nick saban is not most humans his his resume is not the same as almost anyone who's ever encountered his profession and these are these are the moments where we find out why i don't i'm sure he has no personal animus against hertz of but course not. His he allegi- loves him, I'm his, sure. His allegiance is to winning. He pulled another tool out of the drawer at the right time and and overlooked the passion that others might have had, and they won the game. Right, which Bel- Belichick and Belichick and Saban obviously having coached together in Cleveland, 
uh, Belichick has, has demonstrated that capacity over and over and over again, which is why Belichick and Saban are the two preeminent coaches of our of our time, right? Of all, maybe of all time, I guess. Yeah, I mean, be, it'd be hard to say otherwise right now. Belichick will will see a one running back dominate this week, well, and then next week that guy will get three carries. But I want to say one thing. It's funny you mentioned a running back. They have sort of evolved the Patriots over the last five, six, seven games into running the football with a lot more consistency week to week than we're used to. Uh, Deion Lewis has carried the ball. I, w- I don't have the the exact number, but I would bet he's carried the ball 20-plus times in three or four games over the last two months. Deion Lewis, you know where he's from, uh, Keith? Not, nice. It's not Pittsburgh. He's from, what I mean, a, a factory of, of NFL stars, the Pitt Panthers. Well, I was going to say Albany, New York. Yeah, and you know where he went to college? Well, before he went to college. Yeah, all right, right let's get back on the Deion Lewis is get- really the nexus of, of, of our universes, Pauly. Uh, we should bring him in next week. Yeah. <laughs> But no, that you know, again, that's something that I think when everybody talks about the Patriots' offense, obviously the focus is Brady in the passing game because that's what it's been for the most part. But they've been running the ball uh, in, in with greater volume. Let's say it that way, with greater volume than than they normally do. We've not seen Brady <clears throat> as much this year with those you know forty eight attempt games, those fifty two attempt games where. You know, even though he might not throw for 500 yards, it's it's just the pass game becomes the run game. We haven't seen that as much. We talked about this last week where, you know, who could be the breakout star of this January? Is there a chance that Deion Lewis is is a player who three weeks from now or four weeks from now, everybody says but Deion, Deion well, everyone holds him in a different It makes regard. for an interesting matchup in this game because the clear strength of the Titans' defense is their front seven. And I think a lot of people believe – that, that the film will show that you can get to their secondary, particularly their corners. Uh, they start the rookie, Adoree Jackson, who mm-hmm. would, it would not surprise me if he travels with Brandon Cooks. Uh, but I think then I think people feel you can, you can work the other corner, who's, who's now Ty Smith, who is, uh, they signed as a free agent in Tennessee. He's from Towson. Uh, you know, Logan Ryan goes in the slot. Obviously, Belichick knows him well. I think he's a very good player, but, you know, Belichick will feel, depending on formation, personnel, I'm sure that he can attack what he perceives to be his weaknesses. So it'll be interesting because this is this is a good front seven. Increasingly, we hear that there's almost a book on beating, on, on, which is funny to say. There's a book on Brady now after he's annihilated everyone in football for 15 years that you know, you press press man coverage. You got to get pressure up the middle. You can't really blitz it's, him. It's hilarious. It, Listen to that. Like, well, it's so hilarious. Well, if you hit the quarterback, you can beat him. Yeah. Well, yeah. no kidding. Well, but you can't. You can't really blitz him in a in the way the teams. You know, in the way Dick LeBeau used to blitz while playing in zone coverage. He'll 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 dice that apart in a second. Yeah, and I, and look, when a guy's been successful over time, are there particular ways that teams feel that they can best? attack, you know, a good quarterback or a good offense, of course. But when when that happens to be successful in a given week, and it always is at times because it's the NFL and we're dealing with, you know, high-level athletes and great coaches, I always struggle with the word blueprint because when it does happen, it's not the first time that particular thing was ever tried. It's like week one when they lost to the Kansas City Chiefs and everybody said, ha-ha, there it is. <laughs> well, 
number one, that wasn't the first time that was ever done. And other teams have tried to incorporate those kinds of concepts. And you know what? Brady's still been pretty good in his career. I mean, you talked about, well, how do we start this conversation? Saban. He had a blueprint of a quarterback, and and in the critical moment, he strayed from the plan and, and went to the other part of the threw, blueprint. He just no, he just threw out that blueprint and put in the other quarterback blueprint in right. the middle of a game. But that's where the, why we play these games and where these moments get made. Well, I think also with a blueprint like that, where you know, all right, you got to generate pressure on Brady with a with a with with four with four guys essentially, or and you got to be able to to press man cover his receivers. It requires elite personnel in some cases to do that. Yeah, or or a certain kind of personnel. I mean, sure. I, I know exactly what you're saying. Obviously, you don't need 11 all-pros on defense, but it requires a certain kind of personnel. And not every team has that. Not every team is comfortable doing that. Uh, so can it happen in a given week? Sure. But the blueprint thing is hard because, it, it you know, without being cliched, it—, it it's not like someone is coming up with something totally brand new that has never, ever been seen or done on a football field. So when something works, it's normally because it's personnel or in a given situation, something was effective, but it doesn't mean that you can just take that cookie cutter and apply it on a week-to-week basis, because if you could, you teams would do it. You know, it's like zone coverage. If if zone coverage took away, if there was one zone coverage that took away every throw, everybody would take play the same coverage. You know, it doesn't work like that. There's there's no blueprints. There's tactics that can be effective based on based on personnel, but there's no one thing that will work all the time. We've talked about LeBeau. We've talked about um, their personnel, do, where we sort of danced around it. Do do the Titans have the personnel and the scheme to do the unthinkable as what 13 and a half point underdogs. And I'm not asking for yeah. a prediction, yeah. but is um, there a scenario where we could actually see something remarkable happen? I can envision it. Well, again, without trying to be too cliched, I think a couple of things have to happen. Number one, they are going to have to sustain some sort of run game. Yep. Mariota will absolutely have to make some plays outside of structure. And perhaps the biggest key, and they've struggled with with this this year after Mariota was great in his first two years, is red zone offense. They will have to score touchdowns in the red zone. That's not profound, but ultimately for them to win, that's what's going to have to happen. They're not going to win this game kicking field goals if they get in the red that zone. That has killed many a team yes. against in, in Foxborough. We yeah. saw it with Buffalo a few weeks ago in the infamous Kelvin Benjamin play and some right. of the other possessions uh, early in that game. Buffalo really played well and seemed to, to have a chance, and, but they could not score touchdowns. And just to put a bow on this, and you know Malarkey well from his days in Pittsburgh, I'm going to be very anxious to see how he approaches this game because he does have a penchant when he thinks it's necessary for... I don't want to call them trick plays, but let's call them packaged plays. Right. Okay, for plays that you really haven't studied. and Well, Belichick will probably study them. But plays that you normally don't associate as part of your offense. And again, it gets if those plays happen to work, they can help you win a game. If they don't work, they, in my view, they always hurt you because then they prevent you from really generating any rhythm with your offense because they're, they're packaged plays. They're... I hate the word gimmick or trick because I don't think that's the way Mike Malarkey would think about them, but you know that he does that, and I think you'll see some of that in this game. All right. 
Now you may proceed with Zimmer. Can we talk Zimmer and Peyton now? I would love to talk. I love Mike Zimmer. We, we have, love Mike Zimmer at NFL. Films. We love we love bo- both of those coaches have been good to us over the years. Let's talk about not well. We want, we're not going to start with Case Keenum and Drew Brees. We're going to well. Start, we should talk about Case Keenum. We, we will. Because he's but, a little better than people think. But I want to hear about Zimmer, whose defense now is going. How how many years has he been there? Three years. They've been good every year, and you know. How many all pros do they have this year? They're they're a, they're a great defense at every level. Yeah, can we just do a a, two, a thumbprint on what what are we, what is yeah, what what is this defense? Well, I think one thing that they're really really good at, and in our matchup room, we often talk that they may be the best in the league at it. I think they disguise their coverage looks better than any team in the league, and that's really difficult to play against. They have in, what we call interchangeable safeties, and Harrison Smith, who's arguably the best safety in the league. First team All-Pro. And Andrew Sandejo, who's probably a better player than people think. Uh, but when I say interchangeable, it means that they can both play deep, they can both play near the line of scrimmage, they can both fulfill numerous responsibilities and demands within the context of a defense. So that gives them an opportunity to do a lot of things coverage-wise and they disguise coverage really, really well. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, well, it's Drew Brees, he's seen it all. Yeah, again, here's a perfect example. So let's say they win the game, you know, and... and the Vikings. The Vikings. So are people going to say, aha, there's the blueprint to, to beat Drew Brees, that he's never seen disguised coverage? Of course he has, but sometimes it, can, it works, because that's what you try to do. You try to clutter the mind of a great quarterback, because great quarterbacks, particularly the Drew Breeses of the world, they're built on timing, rhythm, structure. That's the way they play. So what you try to do is you try to minimize that. You try to limit that. And there are times it can work. And if it does, that's you're successful in, in your objective. You, you noted their secondary, their safeties. They have a great corner too in right. in Rhodes yeah Rhodes Xavier Rhodes is a very good corner um he's a corner that they will travel at times they did not travel him on Michael Thomas week one they played week one it's a long time ago it might mean nothing as far as this matchup both coaches will look at it clearly but it may mean nothing but he did not travel with Thomas I think as the seasons progressed they've used him more as a matchup corner it it wouldn't surprise me if he does travel, maybe not every snap with Thomas, but Thomas predominantly, not 100%, predominantly is the X receiver. And what that means is he will line up as the single receiver to the short side of the field, to the boundary. He's what we call the X ISO receiver to the boundary. Now, again, that's not 100% because Peyton is very multiple with his formations, but that's what Michael Thomas primarily is in the Saints' offense, the ex-ISO receiver to the short side of the field. Last week we talked about the Saints maybe being the most complete team on both sides of the ball. Also hadn't really been bitten by the injury bug as we as we entered the playoffs. Last week against Carolina, they lost Pete, their offensive lineman. Yeah, will, will that have really an, good player. What kind of impact will that have, again, facing this this— Incredible defense at Zimmer. Well, has. a better player than his replacement, Senio Kelametti, but Kelametti has started six games this year at left guard and has a lot of experience. So they're not putting in someone who can't line up and play. So in their case, while Pete's, I think Pete's had a really, really good season, and I think he's an outstanding puller at the guard position, I don't think Kelametti's as good a puller as Pete. So they may see that as somewhat limiting their run game, which, of course, in a big game like this, does present a little bit of an issue. 
but it's not as if you're putting in a player who can't compete and be competitive. You know, be competitive. He's played. Just to you know, we've been talking about the Vikings' defense and the Saints' offense, but just to, let's just draw this back to the thirty thousand foot question: Is this the best defense versus offense matchup that we're going to see in this postseason? Mm-hmm. This is a great defense this, yeah, and a very great even, offense. Yeah, very even. Yeah. This is fun I stuff. Agree. This could be the best matchup we see, certainly this weekend, but maybe in this whole tournament. Could be. Could be. I mean, the Saints are – they came out last week and they chose to throw the football. I mean, all year long, all we heard or I heard in doing a lot of radio shows, well, what's wrong with Drew Brees because his numbers weren't very good, you know, relative to previous years in terms of yardage. Obviously, his completion percentage was ridiculous, but his yardage and touchdowns. And then the Saints came out this week and pretty much said, you know, we're going to put the ball in Drew's hands a little bit. Yeah. And he did okay. Yeah, it worked out all right. He did okay. Them. Yeah, he was, he was pretty good. At yeah, yeah. He's, he's good at football, Drew Brees, yeah, I think. Yeah, he's pretty good at that. Yeah. So, but obviously they can be incredibly balanced with a run game and a pass game. Um, I mentioned where Michael Thomas lines up. The other thing that's really difficult about that is predominantly, again, Kamara will line up to the same side. So they, they primarily will have Thomas and Kamara lined up to the short side of the field. Sometimes Kamara's offset in the backfield to the short side. Sometimes he's detached and split. That can be very difficult on defenses to the short side of the field, especially if there's what we call trips to the wide side, meaning three receivers, because now you've got to focus the strength of your defense on the three receivers who are you know, normally you'd have a tight end as one of them, but they do line up with four wide receivers at times. So sometimes it could be three wide receivers to the to the trip side. That makes it a little more difficult. And Kamara is such a good receiver. So we're going to put three receivers over here, and we're going to put these two killers over here. Right. And pick your poison. Right. And Drew Brees is, is, is good enough to be able to, to find whoever it is that's open. Yeah, and, and the thing that he's he's does very very well is his understanding of he'll check it down. Yeah. He'll you know he's he normally does not force the football. Every once in a while he will because he'll see something he thinks he can do. But he's not he's did not throw very many interceptions this year. So if Zimmer and Peyton and Breeze and the other guys on defense are kind of the heavyweights that might decide this game, let's talk about another guy who's playing in it, Case Keenum who may not be at that uh, caliber of the marquee name, but this season's had a good season, the team's had a good year, and he's part of what Kaz talked about earlier, this quarterback mismatch. How does he figure into this this game? It's a mismatch only in the sense that Drew Brees is a Hall of Famer. But Case Keenum is played a lot better than people think. And I've watched, at the end of last week, because I was starting already to prepare for this week, I watched a ton of Case Keenum throws. And let me tell you something. He is... First of all, he's a really good mix of aggressive and cautious. He'll turn it loose when he's very comfortable turning it loose and rarely forces it when he does, doesn't throw a lot of interceptions, doesn't make ill-advised throws, but he also can be very cautious when the situation demands. So he's not over-aggressive. And and I've always been a big believer that to play quarterback in the NFL at a reasonably high level, you have to be willing to turn it loose. You know, we talked, we started this podcast talking about a, a Blake Bortles, and you know the fact that he he's not really going to do that. You know, that's not the kind of quarterback he is. You know, and Keenum is willing to do that. 
Keenum is willing to turn it loose and make stick throws into tight windows. You have to be able to do that. They don't hide him. That's what we were talking about with Bortles. They're not trying to prevent Keenum from being a big factor in the game. And he's made a lot of throws. Two things that stand out on film. Number one, he can make throws with people around him. He's made a lot of throws with free rushers coming at him. And he stands and delivers. The other thing, he has a knack for what we call second reaction plays. You know, he's not Russell Wilson. Tell me what that means. What does that mean? You use that phrase a couple times. Just explain what that means. Outside of the structure and timing of the play call. Well, that's what we talked about. That's the kind of play that you must be able to make in January when things break down. So the first reaction is what the play is, is quote unquote, designed to do. Correct. Second reaction is something happens, disrupts that design, and you have to react to it. And you have to react to it. it. Yes. And that's what we call second reaction plays. It's a fancy term. Yeah. And, and, you know, or I, sometimes I call it outside of structure, but, you know, second reaction is, has, sounds better, I think. But it's, it's, it's got a certain yeah, ring, yeah, an industry yeah. term. He's yeah. very good at that, better than people probably think, because he's not a big guy, uh, but he, he will, st- I mean, people may remember on Thanksgiving Day when he had a free rusher and he hit Randolph, uh, Rudolph for a touchdown, and he's made a number of throws this year beating free rushers by standing there and still delivering the football. A glowing review of Case Keenum from one of the stars of uh, All or Nothing Season 2, Case Keenum. Who would you know, have thought and, and, a year ago that he would be where And he having was said that, I'm not going to sit here and say that he's Tom Brady or that he's a great quarterback. I guess I would be surprised. Now, he's playing against the Saints defense. They're going to play a lot of man coverage. The one thing the Saints, the Saints are not a great pass rush team. It's Cameron Jordan, who's a very good pass rusher, and then it's the pressure schemes dialed up by their DC Dennis Allen. They don't have a lot of pass rushers on that D line. So again, could Case Keenum go in this game and and, and not play well? Of course he could. But I, all I'm doing is speaking to his track record this year. He has played far better than the perception of him as just oh a journeyman backup who who, who can't really play. Keenum Breeze, not a mismatch. You there heard it here. Oh, there we go. Well, I didn't quite say that. Well, I but, said it. Okay. Greg didn't say it. I said it. Not a mismatch. What are the times in history where a quarterback not only defied perception, but may have launched his his career with a post like like we didn't know that this guy was going to be this guy until we saw him in that that one January. I got one. Yeah. And not exactly, but for me, Aaron Rodgers in Atlanta. Oh in, I think it God. was, was that it the wild was, card of the divisional game? That was when he became Aaron Rodgers' right. superhero. The Aaron oh. Rodgers game. Oh, my I God. Think he was, as I recall, I think he was 30 for 36 That in was that the game. greatest performance I've ever seen. Yeah. On a Saturday night, if I remember correctly, and yeah. the whole country, and Rodgers was the guy up until then who was sitting in the green room, not getting drafted. Then he was the guy yeah. who was made to sit behind Brett Favre, and then... That he was night. like pretty good. He was like, all right, this Rodgers is pretty good. Here's his first shot in the play. He strafed them. Well, one thing about Case Keenum is someone, whether, look, pe- people are still talking about his offensive coordinator, Pat Shermer, perhaps getting a head coaching job. Case Keenum will be seen because he's a free agent, and I don't know how Minnesota feels at all. So, But Case Keenum will probably be a starter in the league next year somewhere. He should be. There's no. not 32 guys better than Case Keenum no. right now. and he's only... What, a six-year player? He's not old by He's any means. He's not old. No. He is not old. He doesn't have a lot of mileage on him. No. He, he clearly understands the game. And, and like you said, he's able to throw the ball accurately yeah. into, into tight spaces. Well, let's talk about a guy who has to start this Saturday who his fan base is gritting their teeth 
through the fact that he's starting because they didn't really, I don't think, wanted him to. They didn't, they didn't want him to be the guy, but they got him. He's their guy, and that's Nick Foles. He will start this Saturday as the number one seeded and yet underdog Philadelphia Eagles host the six-seeded Atlanta Falcons in the divisional playoffs here at the link. That's a frisky six-seed, gentlemen. That is a frisky you know, one. Super Bowl rematch, cause Their offense has not been oh. very good. The Falcons. Yeah, it's not been very good. Wow. And yeah. it's... Do tell. Well, I mean, the numbers tell a lot of the story. The one area they're good in, which is very surprising when you watch the tape, but these are the numbers, is they lead the NFL in third down conversion percentage. But overall, I mean, I guess their run game numbers are probably similar to last year, but their pass game has been nowhere near what it was a year ago in terms of production. And... They've got some issues on their O-line, and that's where I think they could have a lot of problems in this game. I think the Eagles' D-line versus the Falcons' O-line in certain positions is a definite mismatch. In favor of the Eagles. In favor of the Eagles. Um, More so than the Rams were? Or is different kind of defense? like Because the Rams' defensive line led by Aaron Donald did do some— they disrupted Matt Ryan. They will do— And their running game. In my view, they'll do— something very similar to the to the Falcons. Um, I think the guards can be attacked. Uh, the Falcons' guards can be attacked, and teams can do things with their fronts to create one-on-one matchups. We saw the Rams do that. The Eagles have been very good at that throughout this season because what they do in their nickel in particular is they will often line up two. They'll line up Brandon Graham inside along with Fletcher Cox, and they kind of force an offensive line to decide, okay, which way will we slide our protection? Because if we slide it to Fletcher Cox, who's a great player, then you've got Brandon Graham, who's a defensive end, match one-on-one with a guard. And that's what the Eagles, that's one of the things the Eagles will do. There's a number of things that the Eagles do very effectively to create one-on-one matchups or mismatches inside. Uh, And yet I view this one as the most straightforward game of the weekend. I don't see. I, I don't think it matters a great deal right now that the that the Falcons' offense is not particularly in sync or effective. So you right think now. the Falcons? You like the Falcons in this game? You know why? I like the Falcons' defense. They, they, I, I, that defense looks different they look than they ever last looked week. last they, year. They played really well, in particular over the last month. Yeah, they're a good defense. See now. There's going to be a lot of talk about Nick Foles, and I'm sure it's because we're in Philadelphia. Um, there's probably not as much talk about Nick Foles in Kansas City as there is in Philadelphia, but but we're less. but we're in Philadelphia. So I think I don't know how Doug Peterson's going to treat this, but I think you just have to look at it as if the, hey, the Eagles are playing with a backup quarterback. So what happens when you play with a backup quarterback? Again, it doesn't mean you hide them and you say we don't ever want them to throw. But the Eagles have had a very good run game this year. And it's very, very multiple with different backs. They run certain things with LeGarrette Blunt. They run other things with Jay Ajayi and Corey Clement. So what do teams do? They try to run the ball. They have a very good run game. What do they try to do? They try to play really good defense. The Eagles' defense has been very, very solid and consistent all year. Everybody will want to talk about Nick Foles, and I get that. But it's just it's a, it's a backup quarterback playing on a good team. So use your team. Against... A, a, in particular, a secondary that is playing great. Really well. And a fast defense, a very fast flow defense. Uh, 
And it's you're right. It's this is going to be a difficult matchup for the Eagles. I, this could be another one of those games that's 17-13. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think people view the Falcons as a team that is going to win ugly. And in fact, that's the way they've may, been winning. We may look back when this is all over and say the Falcons kind of won. They got down and dirty and did it. And that's if you're going to do it from this position for, as a six seed, this is how you got to do it. You're going on the road. Right. You're going to play in in in. in Crappy weather this week in Philly, in all likelihood. I think you it's supposed look, to be warm. You gotta, yeah, a little warmer. Relatively, yeah. a little warmer, yeah. Relatively maybe a little wet. Warm, Greg. Yeah. But you're gonna, but but you're gonna be led by a defense typically. Right. You're gonna make a run from that position the way the Giants did in in, in 07, the way the Steelers did in 05. You are going to have to have look, a very strong play from your look, defense. Look, like I said, everybody's gonna want to talk about falls, but so if we want to talk about falls, let's be realistic. Number one, he's not as quick a decision-maker as Carson Wentz. Number two, he's not as good later in the down in the pocket as Wentz. The longer Foles stays in the pocket, the less effective he becomes. Number three, he's not going to make second reaction outside of structure plays. So you know this if you're the Eagles going into the game. So again, it doesn't mean you never throw the football, but you have to account for this. So their offense will be different. This is not a big surprise to anybody. This is like the second reaction coaching, right? I mean, they had Wentz, it hit the fan, and now Peterson's had a couple weeks, and they sort of have to adjust on the fly to. And again, Foles is a guy who's played; he's played some football. It's not like it's not like he's been rotting on the but, bench. But the Foles we saw before their playoff bye, yes. those last couple weeks, I don't think they can. What was that third down conversion stat? Well, they were one for horrifying. seventeen in the last two games with Foles. Converting third downs, correct, which is horrifying. And correct, is not going to get you very. Far and Wentz, there. I think, was the best third down passer in the league so, before he got hurt. So this version of Nick Foles, what what can Doug Peterson do to 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 make him successful? This well, now weekend? it comes down to coaching, and and the one thing you you know about the Falcons, even though they're very good on defense, is and I'm not saying this in a negative way at all. You know what they do on defense. Yeah, yeah, they're a team that plays almost all single high. Over the last three weeks, they played. Probably 75% cover three. That's the zone version of single high. So you know what you're going to get. So it becomes incumbent upon Doug Peterson and the coaching staff to design some things based on their anticipated sense of coverage, based on tendency and probability. That's what game planning and play calling is all about, probability and tendency, to design some things where you feel that Nick can hit that back foot and the ball can come out to avoid in their zone coverage to a receiver who's in the void. And that has to happen. If that doesn't happen, then it'll be problematic. Matt Ryan's also sort of a fake dome quarterback. He's from Eastern Pennsylvania. He is. He went to college at BC. He's from the Philly area, yeah. He went to BC, BC, played outdoors. Now, yes, he's been in Atlanta, but... This is not a guy that's going to be intimidated by being on the road. Well, it's going to be 50 degrees. Well, it's, it's still January. It could be windy. The no, point, I don't think so. The point is the weather segment of our yeah, show. I'm, yeah. I'm, pulling up my, I'm pulling up my weather. Out. I'm saying Matt Ryan will not be deterred no. by, by the circumstances, be they uh, climate or, or environment or underdog or any of that. 53 with 50% chance of rain as we sit here a few days before the game. That's Saturday in Philadelphia. That is not unfair. But to go into conditions. more detail, being the meteorologist that I am. A guy who doesn't uh, like weather games, Cos- I, I may I, remind Co- you. I, I'd just like to say Cosell brought his A game. I thought, I thought I saw He's that my- the rain is supposed to be in the morning and taper off in the afternoon. You know what you are today? What? You are multiple. 
multi. I'm a multi-dimensional second thing. reaction yeah. podcaster. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to ask this though: Is the here's my question about the other side of the ball? Is Atlanta's offense? Is there room for growth for a struggling offense? Yes. Or are they fatally flawed? And this is what we're going to get in 2017. Well, here's the issue you face: they 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 haven't been able to develop the kind of rhythm we saw last year when they were one of the most fun offenses to watch. But you're dealing with a team that has a lot of good players. So, you know, there's always that attitude, which people like to say, that belief that, you know, players are are what's key in the playoffs, you know, because players have to make plays. Of course. Uh, So they do have Julio Jones. He's pretty good. They do have two really good backs who are both excellent receivers as well, who can line up as, you know, split from the formation. Um, You know, one of the things we haven't seen this year that we saw a lot last year when they were more rhythmic was we haven't seen Taylor Gabriel be anywhere near the factor that he was a year ago. So, you know, but again, no one is ever surprised if Julio goes eight for 146 because he's Julio Jones and he can do it any given week. No. And that, that touchdown pass Matt Ryan threw to Julio in in Los Angeles was, was beautiful. He was falling down, falling down, slipping, and he just lofted. That was a schemed red zone play because Julio, you know, ran across the formation. And and as we talked about last year, Julio had not done much in the yeah. red zone this season, so that was a great job by them to 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 get that squared away in a big spot in Los Angeles. So I mean, has their offense been consistent this year? Not at all. Do they have good players, including the quarterback? Yes, they do. So, but I will say this: these two teams played last year. Take it for what it's worth. It was the only game last year when the Falcons did not score twenty points. The Eagles did not do anything specific with Julio Jones. They did not, you know, travel anybody with him. They played their defense. So I, 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 my guess is Jim Schwartz will do something similar. Maybe this is one of those deals where you look back on it and say, what was wrong with the Falcons' offense all season? And you'd say, well, most of us don't look at this, but it, it was maybe the offensive line just isn't good enough. You know, maybe it just there's a, it lacks that rhythm and, and that, that protection. Well, let me tell you something. This I know for a fact, and... We, we, we are not revealing sources, but I can tell you that the Falcons' offensive line last year was viewed by, as not very good at all, and Kyle Shanahan received calls after the Super Bowl saying that you did an unbelievable job with an offense that had a below-average NFL offensive line. Hmm. That was last year's offensive line. I would argue that this year's offensive line is worse. Right. And and Sarkeesian, who took his place, Steve Sarkeesian, with a little bit less NFL experience, maybe hasn't had enough time in the league to adapt and, and, right. and learn how to overcome that sort of a, of a hindrance to, a, to an elite offense. So that, that's why, to me, the Eagles... You, again, Doug comes from the Andy Reid school. They like to be aggressive. So I don't know what he's going to do with Nick Foles. But to me, you have to understand that you're playing with a backup quarterback, and as much as you might like him and all that, you have to understand that he can't do what Carson Wentz could do. He's a backup quarterback for a reason. And you do have a lot of other pieces on your team. You know, they have a very good special teams, too. So there's a lot of factors that the Eagles bring to the table where they can compensate for Nick Foles to some degree and... You know, we'll see how how they decide to play it. Maybe I feel like this game is less straightforward than I thought ten minutes ago. 
Cosell brought us inside. I want to see the Eagle fans. Well, I'll, we've changed. See, first I changed his opinion about the Steelers, who we now think should come out and just throw it all over the field. Well, and now I've changed his opinion on this game. I like to spend, <laughs> this is why I like to spend some time with you in these, these important weeks. I want to see the Eagle fans all wearing their Jeff Hostetler jerseys this weekend. Yeah. Because that is the narrative oh, they need to mimic. Oh, look who brought it back. To the New York football Look, giants. It's a blueprint, right? I mean, that's it worked for them. We, we don't oh, use the word blueprint. A, it's oh, a, sorry. It's a big blueprint. Verboten. You like that. It sounds like a highlight uh, title. There you go, Polly. Nice. Now, Polly, do you have a special surprise for us to end the show today? Well, it's been an, an interesting week in the NFL. Like we said, this show is going to air right between wild card and divisional. So all that and more fun at hand. But that's not the beginning and end of the news. There's been other great stories this week, including... Not this isn't you know the the main one, but we should say, Greg did this podcast with a heavy heart, given the retirement of one of his favorite quarterbacks, oh, Carson, Carson Palmer. Palmer. Oh. He soldiered through. Greg has been a big yeah. Carson Palmer yeah. is... fan for years. Well, I met him before he came to NFL Films, uh, and actually sat with Ron Jaworski and myself when he graduated from USC. That's when I first met him, and he was a great, great. Well, then he was a kid, you know. So I just really liked him personally, and. I've always had a soft spot in my heart, you know, well, this goes back, he came in in 2003, I think it was. Yeah. 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 And, you know, that to me was what a quarterback should look like. The game has changed to some degree. He's so, so He was so gifted throwing that that quarterback would still be viewed as a number one pick. Right. But the game has changed that you have to be truly special throwing a ball. I think if you talk to coaches through the years, they will tell you that he is the prototype. He's the guy that everybody would want. Now, his career didn't turn out, you know, quite as great for many reasons, but you, you can't say he didn't have a successful NFL career. No, he had a fascinating fo- uh, football life. He did. And he then, did. Which, He'd be uh, an interesting guy to do. Yeah. We are we are discussing it. it yeah. Be a, uh, he's, it, you know, there's a lot of twists and turns in that story. There really there are. are. And, 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 you know, you know who was his college coach? Pete Carroll? Yeah. Yeah. And he was a big, big time recruit coming out of. Was yeah. it Santa Margarita? Santa Margarita. Yeah. yeah. He retired in the middle of his career. Yeah. To get out of Cincinnati. Forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. There are genuine twists and turns in the Carson Palmer story. So he's retired for the second time. This is his second retirement. Yeah. And also in the same week as his second retirement was the second time a member of the Davis family has hired one John Gruden to coach their franchise, the Oakland Raiders. And it reminded us of a great story John told us just this past summer. We interviewed him for the uh, documentary that aired a little earlier this year on the Tuck Rule, which uh, John Gruden has clearly played a big part in that story. And in the course of that interview, uh, he told us a great anecdote about interviewing with Al Davis back in 1998 when he was a candidate for the Raiders job. So uh, given his rehiring with the Raiders, uh, we thought we'd take a look back and, and a listen to what it was like interviewing with Al for John the first time he took that job. Here he is, John Gruden. That was the third time I interviewed with Al Davis. I interviewed with Al Davis to be his offensive coordinator after the 95 season. I interviewed for the head coaching job. They gave it to Joe Bugle the next year. And then I guess three times is a charm, but the interview process was Al, with Al Davis was unforgettable. I mean, he asked you every question you could think of, and the interview lasts for about three days. That was scary, fun, and it was uh, memorable for sure. They called me Butch right away when he saw me. Imagine that. He said, Butch, on third and nine, what's your best red zone touchdown pass on third and nine from the nine? Now, I had learned from Tom Landry 
draw the plays up in one color of ink, draw the blocking scheme up in another color of ink, and draw the defense up in another color of ink. So I'm putting the crayons down and doing all the work, and Al Davis says, Butch, what's wrong with the crayons? I said, I'm trying to give you a color-coded presentation. He says, don't you know I'm colorblind? <laughs> so we saw the world a little bit alike, but not when it came to the magic markers. Were you aware that uh, Coach Bill Belichick was also interviewing for that position at that time? Yeah, I talked to Coach Belichick during that process, and I'm sure it was his job if he wanted it. But at that time, no one wanted that job. Everybody was scared of the situation. They were scared of Al Davis, scared of moving to California, probably scared of the black hole, I don't know. But I had no fear, no reservations, none. I was a young guy, I believed in myself. I knew I could get some good coaches. And I really wanted to be a Raider. I wanted to be uh, an Oakland Raider coaching for Al Davis. I figured if I was judged by anybody in the business, I'd rather be judged by a man that was coach of the year, commissioner of the league, than somebody that never had anything to do with football. We welcome him back to the league, John Gruden. It's a better league when he's on the sidelines. And I would say, you know, kids, if you want to take one lesson from the John Gruden story, a man who's just signed a 10-year, some... Uh, 100 million, I believe. Reportedly a $100 million contract. Just find something you love and do it. Because look how much this guy loves football. It's, it, it oozes from him when you're in his presence, when you see him on television, and clearly it's, it's led to a level of success. Will he win another Super Bowl? Who knows? But he's had, a, a, to use Kaz's phrase, a, a pretty nice football life based on his passion for this game. So, yeah, we're excited to have him back. That was you doing that interview, right? It was, yeah. I interviewed him once. Uh, I've, inter I've had the opportunity to interview him a couple times, and, and, and both instances were memorable. Somebody wrote something this week about... Uh, some of Gruden's intelligence is he's just this great big picture thinker. And the first time I interviewed him, we went into that tape bunker that uh, he had down in Tampa at the time. And it, it was, of course, probably five in the morning when we had, when he wanted us to show up and there's no other cars around. We go in there and he was super polite, but he was so focused watching it. And he had a television on in the background and uh, George Steinbrenner had died that week. So we're talking to him about football and whatever, and he kind of looks over and he goes, you know, George Steinbrenner, everybody wants to talk about how he fired Billy Martin and how he did this and how he did that. Anybody want to talk about how many baseball fields he's built around Tampa, how many funerals he's paid for? Gruden had this whole other outlook on Steinbrenner, and it just it struck me as, as, as much as everybody wants to focus on his love for football, which I just did, it, there's more to the guy. Uh, and And... Like I said, he's, he's, he's fun to watch. He's fun to listen to. He's fun to interview. And uh, I'm excited that he'll be back on our sidelines. You know, when I first met Groot, he was the coach with the Eagles. I think uh, he started out, maybe it was 96 or so. Yeah, he was an off a young offensive, offensive assistant. Yeah. Um, he may have been the coordinator. I forget. But he, mm -hmm. was, he was in Philly. And on that same staff was Sean Payton and Bill Callahan. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I get a phone call from the Eagles that Callahan... Peyton and Gruden want to come to NFL Films, you know, for a tour. Here they are. They've never really spent any time in the Philadelphia area. They're all football guys. They want to come to NFL Films. So I got a call from the Eagles, and they came over, and I gave those three guys a tour of NFL Films. That's the first time I met those guys. Ninety. So I guess it was 96, Peyton give or take. Peyton and Gruden. 20, Peyton and Gruden. Peyton years ago. Gruden Peyton and, and Gruden. Yeah. All right. Well, who's ready for my Gruden story? <laughs> Pittsburgh, right? 1998. I went. I was a. I was a young. A youngster feeling my oats. Had a little bit of success. It was at, right after they won the Super Bowl, and I was sent 
to Tampa to do an interview. We used to sit in a halftime feature on Monday Night Football. This was going to be the first uh, one of the year, the following season, week one, watching Wire. We would sit down with a guy, and he would watch his when we have him mic'd up in the game, and we would do an interview about it. And so this was him mic'd up in the Super Bowl, and I'm going to interview Gruden about it. And, his, you know, he is a master of profanity uh, on the sideline, one of the best there's ever been or ever will be. His language and the, the way it's he very creative. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. everything about his language fascinated me. Yeah. So I studied that wire for weeks, and I went down, and I had a line of questioning about the way he spoke to his coaches, the way he used profanity strategically or not, and something about it really rubbed him the wrong way. And when I left, we got a call from the Bucks. That little guy that came down here, Coach, <laughs> Coach doesn't want to see him again. Really? I got, I got banned Verboten. from Tampa. I got banned wow. from going back to Tampa during Gruden's interview. I have never once worked with him in the six, 17 years since that. My guess is he probably hasn't forgotten that either. And, uh, uh, he doesn't well, forget I anything. Would, I would think he has forgotten. <laughs> That's my Gruden story. Well, Coach Gruden. Welcome back. Welcome back. See you out there. All right. Shall we wrap it up? Hit it. Thanks to our engineer, Steve Mosley, our producer, Rich Owens, and to the NFL Films guru, Greg Cosell, for joining us today to reflect on the wild card weekend and look forward to this weekend, divisional football on Saturday and Sunday. Be sure to catch Greg's show NFL matchup on ESPN, ESPN2 this weekend. And be sure to uh, catch all of our shows all over your dial. Go to our social channels uh, and uh, enjoy the football. This You could argue this is the best football weekend of the year, Paul. That's what Steve used to say. Divisional weekend he is the best weekend. love this weekend. Enjoy it, folks. From the home of America's football movies in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Take care.